hey, what what um version of this book do you have? Uh, Spencer's Images of Life. Well, I have an original first edition paperback, but I don't really read that one. I got oh, okay. this version. Yeah, that's what I got too. So they just it just went back into print um, in this version, and it's in the Canto Classics. And I don't know, I don't, I wouldn't have thought that it was in the public domain so they must have gotten permission or they just punk rocked it and yeah printed it because no one was printing it and it needs to be in print which i fully support <laughs> <laughs> like okay just whatever it takes to get it done yeah because because uh, i think it's it was like 250 dollars last time i looked and then now it's what 12 dollars or something with the canto I classics i think i bought mine with for 13 bucks so, yeah. Um, I don't like to. I don't like to read my first ed- editions. I just, really? It makes me nervous. Yeah, I mean, because and and this this one's not. I mean, it's not worth a ton, fine, but it's it is still worth more than I want to accidentally lose carrying around in my bag. You know, how many books you carry on your bag? Uh, four to six, depending on. Where's your bag at? Let's <laughs> see what I've got in there right now. Yep. So right at the moment, I've got uh, Coleridge, Horace. I'm in the Purgatorio with Dante. I knew Dante was going to be in there. <laughs> Uh, and then just picked up uh, a young poet. It's a new new book just when just published. Checking out a young poet. See um, if her stuff's any good. I like to try and pick up the book of new poetry regularly and just check it out. Um, hoping to find something. Sometimes you do. Sometimes you find stuff that's not any good. But that's all right. Okay, I have a question for you. I was reading. I do just realize, though, that all I, I had all poetry in there. I did all, but I also had these. These were in there, also, and I pulled them out for this. So C.S. Lewis's um, Spencer's Images of Life, and then uh, Jesse Weston from Ritual to Romance. Um, this is a book of. This, this is like sort of the great enemy of Spencer. Um. So I just fi- I just finished that one. He's the anti- he's ar- he's the anti Lewis about Spencer, so he's arguing the opposite of what Lewis argues. And so wanted to check that one out. You know, it's funny you say that because as I was um, I bought the fair um the Fairy Queen, I think it was heritage versions of the Fairy Queen, and. They didn't all seem to be so they still think it was an amazing piece of work, but they weren't as Lewis about it as um they made Spencer to seem like a tormented person more than anything else. Okay. Who who was tormented with this world. And so he wrote in a way that was kind of like, oh, you know. Um, so that's that's interesting. 
I'll ask you about that in a second. But there was something. Okay, I don't even know where to start it. There's kind of there's so many there's so many places I want to start. I want to talk about Transformers. I want to oh talk. Oh my gosh. So I want to talk about um across the Spider Verse. I want to I want to talk about Juneteenth, and <laughs> I want to talk about the Fairy Queen. So this is like either going to be like the worst show we've ever done, or <laughs> it's going to be absolutely amazing. But in my writing, oh, I think I wrote it down. Or did I put it in my phone? I, so you told me that the Fairy Queen is basically the book that we should really focus on in order to be able to get out of the current, was it Gnosticism? And yeah, like, I think it's the, the current, um, the, the current kind of materialistic Gnosticism that we just don't realize we have assumed the fairy queen is like a direct um, it's a direct it's in direct opposition because Edmund Spencer um, he embodies in his, it, it. He writes into his, his book, the, um, the, un, the realist understanding of the world, the, the realism of, of a world that's actually, his historically imbued with a deep magic. Um, so in, so what we have is a, a Gnosticism that we've got the, the underpinnings or the assumptions of materialism and then the Gnosticism rescues us from it. So Gnosticism takes us out of the world. It takes us away from the world, away from our neighborhood, away from our neighbor uh, because the, the materialism is the, is the problem. problem right it's the enemy um there's a magiclessness to the world um and the world just happens to be in the particular shape that it's in because of force and coercion and so we need to be saved from that because the the historical processes processes are some sort of force and coercion um whether it's internal external everybody agrees that it's force and coercion because there's there's no um overarching uh there's there's not a uh a deeper meaning to the current shape that the world is in is that um, why is that why ideas and thoughts like systematic racism have such an anchor in the way that yeah. we operate because it's a way of saying here is the here is the force that has the world in its current shape and but i've got the idea that can rescue us from that. And it turns out to be a coercive thought, a coercive force from the other side. Um, but it, it is saving us from the historical situation, the, the historical uh, movements of coercive force that, you know, some people say it's racism. Other people say it's, uh, and, and the problem is the right always, Right now, what's happening is the res the right is responding with communism, saying like it's not black and white; it's rich and poor. Don't you get it? <laughs> and the left doesn't care if we come back with communism. If you know, if it's a racial communism or a financial communism, they don't care. Um, it, as long as the solution is collectivism, uh, mm. we. 
don't have any solutions that are non-collective anymore on the right. Most of our solutions are collectivist solutions on the right now. Um, we, we've lost uh, any sort of layered layered authorities, any sort of uh, the, the traditional um, you know historical historical development of, of layered authorities is completely gone. I mean, you, you see this, it's Juneteenth, for example. Right. The federal, the federal government just decides to declare Juneteenth a holiday. Um, that's, that is uh, a really good example of a collectivist mindset. The highest you've got, the highest collectivist, right? Where you go to the highest authority in the land and then they set the calendar for you. Um, the, and then once the calendar is set by the highest authority in the land, then it's set for everyone. You can't go around having subcultures with their own celebrations, um, smaller cultures with their, that's a threat to the, to the collective. Um, and the globalism, it's like what globalism it is. is. Globalism is just one level up. It's, it's instead of a national collective, globalism is a global collective. Um, um, so is this what happens when you reject overlapping covenantal realities? Mm-hmm. And so right. is, is that inherent inside of Spencer then? And, and, yeah. So Spencer has, he's got the over overlapping covenantal realities are really important. And so you've got these layers. And so a lot of, uh, a lot of, you know, you end up with tension because you've got vows to layered authorities that come into opposition to one another. And then you end up with story tension, right? Um, we don't we couldn't even have that kind of story tension anymore because i mean you get it sometimes when it's like a dad having to choose between work and family that's right? about it yeah. but beyond that i mean we cuz it you know it, um like I, june juneteenth is i mean it's an interesting one too because it is a um it's a it's a national or it's a it would would be a federal authority the original juneteenth was a federal authority declaring freedom to citizens of lower authorities who had who declared them slaves mm-hmm. right? so even that was you had overlapping covenants in opposition to one another and you know the the folks from the south will say well lincoln would didn't have that authority because we had walked away from from the constitution we had walked away we were now our own nation um so he didn't have that authority the folks from the north would say well no you they signed all of the documents they signed on to all of it and so they still were a part of the nation and so we they and they we had to i mean it's so it's so complicated but um because i don't think lincoln was i, I think for lincoln the declaration of the freedom of the slaves was a war tactic. Yeah. Um, right. You know, so, um, but he also was, he, um, it also was the right thing to do uh, and probably legal in a, in a historic, um, you know, Western common law sense. But, it not it, but he didn't go through the courts to do it, which is what he would have needed to do. <laughs> you know, you know, you know, this is going to be interesting because I would love to know. David Fowler is a Southern boy, right? Yeah. So, 
he's got that Southern blood in him. And I would like to know with his, uh, with his common law perspective, how he would feel. I've never talked to him about that. Yeah, the, that would be really, the, that would be a really fun, a uh, really fun conversation because like Edmund Burke, he was arguing that they had stepped outside of their legal authority in terms of Western common law to allow slavery on, yeah. on land, the English speaking land. Um, and the, uh, and so he was ready to cut them out, actually argue that, the, that they should have been de decolonied, um, <laughs> right? Given the opportunity, they, they should have been given the op opportunity to free all the slaves or be removed from, from the crown. You're not of an English colony anymore. You don't get, you don't get our protection, right? They weren't going to start a war with them, but they were no longer going to get the protection of the crown and the Navy, which they needed. So, um, and so he, so as, as the, you know, the, the, he, he's sort of the eminent conservative mind, um, maybe of all of history, conservative, he, you know, uh, Edmund Burke. Yeah. His, his argument, um, Lincoln, who was not, was not really a conservative in the, that at Burkean sense, um, actually did the thing that the conservatives should have done and that the church should have insisted on, right? The church lost its, the church lost its public office um, by not, by uh, not listening to the abolitionists in their ranks. Uh, before the civil war, the church held a public office in society. Uh, after the, after the civil war, um, the church had lost it because nobody, trusted it to be the conscience of the nation because it had missed so wildly on slavery. Mm. Um, so it, it was destructive in a lot of ways. Um, and so you had what was probably an illegal declaration of what would have been legal had it gone, you know, of, of the right legal, <laughs> you had an illegal declaration <laughs> Um, of the right legal conclusion uh, that was then, you know, sent out probably as an act of war rather than as an act of mor morality. Um, Man. Uh, <laughs> so that, that, but because of the overlapping authorities, it put, it put, so you had slaves that, that said, sorry, Lincoln, you don't have the authority to do it. I want to be free. But you, you're not actually the authority because they agreed with the Southern legal tradition that said by leaving the um, the Union, the his authority was gone. And then you had other slaves that said, hey, we're free. We didn't have the right to leave the Union. They agreed with that legal tradition. And um, some of them were very heroic fighting for the Union. And you had some that were very heroic fighting for the um fighting for the uh, Confederacy. So it's not a straightforward legal thing, um, but it it is a good memorial. Juneteenth is the, is a proper memorial for the end of slavery because it is something we should celebrate. Right? Mm. Whether you know, however God brought it about, we should celebrate the end of slavery and Juneteenth makes as much sense, makes more sense than most days. You know, I don't think that though people at least from being around the, the climate of the conservative and liberal 
fire, the fight back and forth, the way that the left has jumped on Juneteenth has immediately made the right feel like Juneteenth isn't actually a valid holiday. Right. right. That's really been disappointing to watch and see because people don't even know what Juneteenth is. Like right. most matter of fact, I'll say like we celebrated Juneteenth, but I know a lot of black people even who who didn't really know what Juneteenth was not to just not too long ago, which is kind of surprising. But um well, because, if, out, if you weren't if you weren't in Texas, because it's a Texas holiday, right? It well, yeah, it started there, but it kind of spread. So it spread, yeah. Yeah, yeah. As Texas went out, then it became more of a, you know, it wasn't just Texas anymore. But yeah, yeah you, we were, you've met yeah. Gabe. You know how evangelistic <laughs> Texans are. <laughs> yeah, man, we were celebrating in Minneapolis. Like Juneteenth was a holiday in Minneapolis. It went down, you know. Now you wanted to go to Juneteenth while the sun was still out because you didn't want to, you wanted to go to the next one. Let's just say that. <laughs> <laughs> now when the sun went down let's just say it wasn't juneteenth anymore it was something else uh right but but yeah we celebrated it um then georgia there had georgia had many festivals they had the sweet auburn festival that was right down there off of auburn avenue um i think there was a celebration for juneteenth in georgia as well um you know yeah everywhere i kansas city there was a juneteenth event there was a, a holiday a celebration there, Minneapolis. Yeah. So, I, you know, but then I find a lot of black people was like, yeah, we never celebrated Juneteenth. We just heard about it like 10 years ago or 15 years ago or something like that. The but but that's actually the normal way for celebrations to spread and grow. Well, if you think about it, it makes sense with the story of Juneteenth, though, right. does it? Yeah, it does. So I, so just like a quick overview of Juneteenth real quick, just shortly. I can't even remember um, the, so how long the celebration lasted, but I remember, so the whole story of Juneteenth was the slaves were freed, but in Texas, can't remember the town, there was a group of slaves that didn't know that they had had their freedom. And so the word came to them and they were like, hey, don't you know you're free? And immediately these people jumped up in jubilation and threw a party, threw a, they put took off all their old clothes, they put on new clothes. They thank the Lord for their freedom. It was almost like a praise worship service, to be honest with you. And 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 they memorialized this day um, and, and with that tradition. So it was old clothes to new clothes. It was uh, food and celebration. It was it was it was jubilant, right? Um, and it was it almost when you read about it, it feels like something out of the Old Testament to hear. Like we found the book of the law. You know, right? that's right. what it reminds you of is that kind of celebration. And so. It was getting word that they had been freed from slavery and immediately it wasn't like, oh, okay, that's cool. They began to have jubilation and it just broke out into the streets. And I think it went on for a little bit. I can't remember how long it went on, but I have to look that part up. But this Juneteenth is like, oh, yeah, that's that racial holiday. We don't do that stuff. I'm like, whoa, hey, time out. Juneteenth is a beautiful holiday that everybody should look and be like, oh, wow, that's an America that I want to live in. Right. Right. So the struggle for me, though, Jason, is like I, I I'm grateful for Juneteenth. And if it's a holiday that people want to uh, represent or enjoy, I want them to do it. The part that's challenging and I'm, I'll, I kind of want it recognized nationally. But the part is challenging is that. When you talk about, well, the government doesn't get to give you your celebrations and your holidays because they don't make the calendar. It's like, yeah, no, I, I, you're right about that. And yet I'm like. I still like 4th of July. <laughs> right? But 4th of July is a is a national 
celebration. It's an it's an it's something it's something that we civically hold in common, right? Oh, I so, see what you're saying. So yeah, you're saying so, overlapping celebration that doesn't necessarily have to be a federal or national one. Is yeah. That what you're so because so um, it, we we should have we are we're free people. We should say, well, we're taking Juneteenth off because we're in charge of our own lives. We're not slaves to anyone. Mm-hmm. We don't need the, the, the and the federal government says, oh, you'd like a day off. Will you have our permission? We don't we don't need your permission. We don't need the federal government's permission. We're free people. We're not we're not on a plantation. <laughs> that's the that's um, and that is that's my frustration with the federal government um giving juneteenth as a holiday um the way that so now um but there's if there are there are other eras where i think the federal government understood that and is happy to recognize holidays so like christmas being a a national holiday i think is a good idea um and i don't think there's any um I don't think that anybody thinks, well, the government is giving us Christmas off. Well, um, even if they didn't, we would take it anyway. We'd be like, I don't care what you say. Right, exactly, because we're free people, right? We, right? We're not working on Christmas. Um, and unfortunately, there are, but but you do hear Christians talk about how, oh, yeah, they're going to the try company. to take Christmas away. Yeah, our company is closed. And so y'all don't come to work on Christmas. We, we ain't doing right. it, right? Right. So the so, um, and that's where we the overlapping calendars is so is important, right? So if if for example, the government came along and said, "Hey, we're going to start giving you Chinese New Year off," if there's nobody that stops and says, "What? Wait, what? What are you doing? You don't come in and give us Chinese New Year off." That's not if you if you don't think that there are one ulterior motives that you shouldn't you don't i mean that that's partly what i go to is immediately is like well i don't trust your ulterior motives whatever they are trying to give us chinese new year off you must be working for you know this is maybe this was part of the bribe that you took you know to give us chinese new year off but um but also you think well but we're not in china right why why are you coming and trying to give us chinese new year off as a way of defining who we are right you we we have a we we have the julian calendar we all live under it and so we take the first of january off that's our new year's day if you came in and tried to give us a different new year's day you are trying to unsettle the uh something that is a cultural norm because then you say well which new which day is the new year when does the new year start now we've got multiple new years you can have multiple New Years in terms of subcultures, so uh, and, or you can have an ecclesiastical New Year and a civic New Year, uh, and then maybe a family New Year, right? Where you have, which is what I think an anniversary, uh, husband and wife anniversary, is the family's New Year. Oh, you know, you, I never thought you, about you, it like that. That is yeah. that. Wow, that's really good. I never thought anniversaries are the family's New Year. Right. So uh, right like where that. you. Because you've got layered jurisdictions, and but I I don't think everybody should have to celebrate my anniversary, right? They've got their own anniversary, um, and and um, when the federal when you're celebrating freedom from the federal government, uh, 
freedom from the federal government saying, hey, you guys can be slaves. Uh, <laughs> freedom from the government's uh, overreach than letting the government say, hey, we're going to take that holiday. That one's going to be one of ours. I think is a... Uh, I I honestly think it's an attempt to destabilize, uh, to to make sure that the black community can't be have have has nothing to gather around in order to gather itself. That isn't separate from the government itself, right? Interesting. It's it's a way to say it's another way to show ownership of mm -hmm. people, huh? Yeah, so okay, I'm not. I'm not. I don't want to get. I'll. I'll stay here for a minute because I think there's a lot here. So then, what is? So okay, okay. So put this on the shelf for a second because okay. I think we're gonna come back around. So we have. It's important. So the, the calendar and the holidays help us identify, uh, who we are, right? How we came to be, and our story, right? Right. And, in 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 its certain in its environment in its local environment for uh overarching um federal government to come in and to say we are taking that is to remove its identity from where it actually initiated right so this right? is why this this is why one of the things that um that Karl Marx and and well that marxists always insisted on was that there were no celebrations outside of the, there were there were no groups that celebrated mm -hmm. anything outside of what was given permission to celebrate. Right, you had to have permission mm -hmm. to celebrate. You had to have permission even to have, like in in Russia, um, every single group had to be um, had to be dismantled and go get permission to meet again. Even down to like if you had a knitting group or whatever, right? You you couldn't meet um, unless you had the government's permission. You know, this is what we're doing. I mean, this is one of the things like the fifth book of Harry Potter, um, when the when you have um, the government start to overreach, they what's brilliant is it's all just the tactics of um, of the of the communists right? The, to take over the school. Uh, and so nobody can meet, you know, no more unless you have permission, you can't have any meetings. Uh, was one of the things, but another one is that you can't celebrate anything unless um, we give you the permission to have the celebration, because that's the sort of thing that makes a people that brings a people together, um, and we can't have people brought together because they may end up opposing us. Because well, yeah, we're it because and also too, we are the cohesive glue that holds you together. Not you, not your yeah. relationship with each other. Not the people that you're next to. Us, the federal government, right. we are exactly okay. Because the, so, because it's ahead. all rivalry, right? When it's all rivalry, it's always um, every every thing is seen as opposition. Um, and mm -hmm. I mean, and you think about this is in an evolutionary world, everything is rivalry. Everything is rivalry. The, the the rivalry is the force that has created turned us into who we are in in evolution in uh, Darwinian evolution, right? So the um, and we live in an 
evolutionary materialism in terms of everything is becoming something else by coercive force. And so you can't let other groups gather because they are seen as, um, well, they're seen as rivals. They're seen as it's, it's seen as a gathering of power, free radical, literally. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, and, and in a mechanistic world in an understanding of the world, that's mechanistic. Um, you can't have free radicals. You can't have pieces doing their own thing. Um, I mean, honestly, I think this is where the, what's so strange is, um, you know, a lot of, there was a lot of the black Panther movement in the sixties and seventies. And a lot of that was actually guided and directed by communism, by communists. They yeah. infiltrated early on, uh, the but then the way that they were opposed by the federal government at the time was um in the in the same kind right it was in the same um the same way uh of it was they have so it turned out they had the exact same worldview they just both wanted to be in power that was the difference <laughs> so you you um the way that the uh, opposition to the black panthers was handled was um it was like fascists versus communists and fascists and communists agree on everything except for um where you gather or who's invited to the table uh the power table so it's funny i was just and I, this is going to turn the corner here i was just watching a trailer i think it's called uh chevalier have you seen have you seen this trailer I've seen the trailer. I haven't seen the movie yet. I haven't seen the movie yet either, but just watch. I want to watch the movie because it looked, the trailer looked really interesting, but it was something that looked familiar to me in the trailer that I really, really didn't like, which was, okay, so Chevalier is about a mixed black man who um, gains high uh, repute in Frenchian world, right? Yeah. In France. And He's uh I can't remember what area is before the revolution, right before the revolution. Um, and he becomes a very talented violinist and composer. I don't know the historic. Is this a true historical story? I'm I don't not know. Sure. Yeah, I, I need to look into it. It says that it's based around a true historical story. So, but there's some things that they do have historically right, at least if, if from what I can see. Um, and it's that uh, because of his anger with the current systems in place. Uh, that wouldn't let him be human, right? As as or as talented as he was, or to be in environments uh, that everyone else was at, and to be set back or pushed aside. Um, the revolution partnered with him to use him as a wedge in order to bring about the new Frenchian government. And they have a line in there: "This is the way that God intended, and this is the way it's always going to be." You know, and it's. And you and everything, and so it's designed to make you say, "Yes, you are wrong, lady," <laughs> right? Because right. she's telling him, "You can't come here," and God intended it to be that way. And the French Revolution was to say, "We don't want that God," right? Like, like, and so there's this mixture where they jam you, and and so they make you want this new world, this new thing that allows people to be equals, but with a different type of hierarchy that's not going to be really be good for anybody. Right. And it's like, right, right. and so it's it, what was interesting to me in that was that when you have a wounded person or individual, 
it is easy to co-op them to make them think that they're doing something good because you embrace them. And I'm, I see that same I see that same thing happening so much right now, even to the black community, where it's like the Marxists and the socialists and the evolution evolutionistic idea and worldview is easy for us in a lot of ways to want to embrace because it topples the very enemy that that we think we're fighting, right? And so we'll embrace that or we'll partner with it so that the evil that we think that we want to destroy, the things that are evil, we'll, we'll come together, we'll destroy it. And I think some of like the Black Panthers were part of that same mm -hmm. movement. I think, you know, the, some of the things that you see in Islam is the same way. It's like, hey, this is a problem. If you become a Muslim, then you can get with this. And then we have more power. And now we can fight this. And it's just co-op and the whole thing. BLM did the same thing, right? I mean, they're trained Marxists, right? right because right. they have to topple this system of injustice, right? And and it's sad because there are things that are true that are problematic. And just like what you were saying earlier, the only way to really solve the problem is with another form of coercion, which is what the French Revolution was. That's exactly it, right? You didn't get something better. Right. Right. No. And so, but my hope, so I wanted to, I set that up because I wanted to ask you, um, I, as I was reading uh, Lewis's, so you told me before I read the, the Fairy Queen, I need to go through Lewis's introduction of um, of Fairy Queen, of Edmund Spencer's book. And it was called C.S. Lewis with uh, Alistair Fowler, Spencer's Images of Life. Yeah, edited by Alistair Fowler. And so I started reading it and there's a, there's a, I can't remember what line struck this, but I wanted to, it made me think of this question. Um, are movies poetic theology? And so the reason I'm asking that question before you jump on it, the reason I'm asking that question is because I've always wondered why it is that when movies get it wrong, we are so upset. And my thought is, um, you know, when they, when they get it, wrong it makes us really mad because there's a general revelation of theology that we expect movies to follow and when they don't follow that properly we all know inherently that this is a bad film and so i'm like and and the way that um lewis talks in the introduction of the book that's kind of the point that i think he's making altogether is that poems are a form of theology and poetic theology right and so i'm like well are movies like that for us too where the, this is poetic it's hidden it, it's hidden images um and there's a point that they're making and when that point resonates it's because we know that's how the world really actually operates and functions and when it doesn't it's because we, we they're doing their exegesis poetic general exegesis general theology or general revelation exegesis improperly Right. Yeah. I mean, I think I think that the the movies that really resonate with people are the ones that reflect um, our place in reality back to us. Well, right. And um, but the problem is there's there's a competing there. There are two versions of that that are competing with one another all the time. Right. And so that's why sometimes you get something that is really, really popular in the moment. 
and then people completely forget about it you know 10 years later and people are like oh yeah that's right that was like a number one movie at the time but nobody watched it again you know and it didn't stick around and then you've got other other movies that stick around for 30 40 years and people still go back to them and watch them because and they become the they they enter into the mythos of our identity cinderella um, cinderella is a good example i mean in america i would say i would put like the godfather in that Oh wow! Um, right. So, because so think think of this. Why is it that we call? Uh, why why is it that that um, the entire black community, uh, you know, talks about or um, in the in the nineties when you had G Funk come along, you have the uh, gangster, you know, gangster rap um, all come along, and why is it able to sweep through so? sufficient i mean so completely uh it and i mean i remember um when i you know this is you know one of those funny weird memories but seventh grade um i'm in a mostly white junior high and everybody's arguing about why will smith calls um joffrey the butler g and they're all and, and everybody's like, well, it's because his first name is G, and everybody's like, no, it means gangster, right? This is all, all white high school. I mean, all white. I mean, almost all white junior high, arguing about what you know this, um, it, and very this very passionate argument in the gymnasium about why does he call him G, and because you know, it, but that's like. Gangster, the the whole gangster movement, you know, you Warren G, the whole, you know, he, um, even his videos were all Italian mobster themed, right? And and everybody resonated with that. The, the same thing comes along with Wu Tang and Kung Fu, um, when Kung, because I think Kung Fu enters the the um, American. The, so you've got I think the the Wild West, the uh, American gangster, and the uh, Asian kung fu um you know karate that we we mix them all together i know they're all distinct for asians but in america we mix all of the um asian martial arts together and and that's how we develop our i our understanding of community and and masculinity and is i think the western the gangster and the and kung fu right so that um so it's all it uh, masculinity is incredibly individualistic and um the mythos but the mythos comes to us through our movies right the movies are the things that make us i mean i think for the generations below us pirates are are because of pirates of the caribbean i think pirates have entered the consciousness of the generation below us in a way that it wasn't for us right um i my my kids think of uh, what was that zombies yeah zombies zombies uh, pirates uh and i think marvel um and yeah. the superhero movie is doing that same sort of thing and some of some of that's good and and some of that is stuff, something we need to resist and uh, but it's because we don't really have a strong overarching creational mythology that we have to go go to these sub mythos sub the sub mythos um, the the smaller 
stories in order to get our identity because we we don't really have an agreed upon greater mythology knights the knights of the round table used to be um the the most important um mythos uh story story for the mythos of english-speaking people for a thousand years i mean it was the the knights of the round table were well probably for 700 years 800 years right the night but uh knights and ladies were the uh the ideal and that was all um really finally undone in the teens and the 1920s but that's right when you start getting the gangster movie right the american gangster movies all show up in the 1920s that's when they and then i think the godfather is just the greatest of them all and it's kind of reached that's when it reached their peak but it it's a competing round table but it's instead of a, a round table that has universal applica- applicability you um and and not completely universal because often the you know the knights of the round table or have to fight uh, off muslims or they meet a righteous muslim you know and they ha- and they have to interact so they there is an there is the other people but you don't have muslims in england right the other people that you have to fight um it's like a a a knight that has gone bad but usually or a giant or a dragon right it's not the something that you just run into in your day-to-day life um but you learn nobility you learn what the right thing to do everybody learns from the knight's vow to protect all women that it's a that masculinity involves the protection of women excuse me so um but we but you don't get this with um you know a sicilian a sicilian mob family the family is what you you're either a part of the family or you're not but if you're not in the family then you are not um you're an enemy right you, you, the the government is is fundamentally an enemy and which i think you know i'm that part i'm okay with broken clock right 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 yeah well no I, but that's the thing is like the the mob the um, like a, a Sicilian Italian mob family has a lot right about it. That's what, um, and I think that is what is so attractive. The, the problem you know, is the lines know, are just drawn in the wrong spot. Yeah, you're right because that's one of the things that when you're watching The Godfather, one of the moments that you are happy for is to see, you know, him come in there and smack up his sister's boyfriend, husband. Because right. you're like, you don't treat women like that. You, you know don't treat I mean? women like that. We we don't treat our women like that. And that's the problem. It's the our women part, right? But he, you're he's the, it's right when it's like, well, we don't treat women like that. The problem is they draw a line, and there are other people that are dehumanized by the the tribalist mentality. That's and that that becomes a problem. And um, it, it, the other thing though that is interesting is that. As you're talking, I'm thinking about how much when you said government, I was thinking of like it establishes such a strong family government. Like it is that every that if you're longing for that and you don't have that, especially amongst fatherless men, then you're Mm going to look at that and be like, okay, 
that is that is a family that is a strong and we and we're attracted to family government being a very strong unit right right but what's what's the first line though in the movie i believe in america yeah right but it's but it's failed us right right and that's the story that's the story that every now the godfather was ahead of its time in that that story it uh, nobody wanted to make it everybody nobody believed it would work um because nobody because it hadn't caught up with the elites that america everybody was be was disenfranchised everybody was disillusioned with nationalism but he was but they were ahead of their time in that um that the disillusionment with nationalism was going to catch up with everybody and the art that was ahead of its time became a classic because it's an it's a it's a movie about where do you go when you're disillusioned with nationalism retreat to the family Mm. right now and that that's happening still that's happening all over the place um i mean i i think this is the patriarchy movement i um right now right um is an attempt to uh retreat from the disillusionment to the family as if it's going to provide what nationalism failed to do um and i don't and this is not every person that says they believe in patriarchy and um and you know my problem with the people using that word that don't know the original definition just like nationalism <laughs> you know but um but I, the it i understand it because um w- we've seen it happen a bunch of times before this isn't the first time that this has happened um where you've got a disillusionment with the thing that had promised that gave us our i mean the federal government gives us our calendar it gives us our school system it gives us the rhythms of life it gives us our uh our story right when you say well where where did we come from people say well 1776 right that's where we came from that's the we the we um for most people you know in the in the 80s and you know the the uh was the the government right the but what the uh what the godfather saw coming was that that was that was failing all that was failing a lot of the minority groups within the country and that 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 doesn't stay put right that's going to spread and the disillusionment is going to grow and it did they were exactly right right so you have the um you have i mean if you just read through all of the simon and garfunkel lyrics at the time it's all about the disillusionment with america right um you uh, you you've got the gangster movies that you've got the growth of the kung fu movie right at the same time uh, for the same reason um it it's a uh and then you've got black cinema kicks in shortly thereafter um you have the uh the all of the different movements are disillusionment movements um communism or the communists came along and said, what if we get, what if we gathered you all together? Think of the voting block you could become if we gathered you all together. And that's what they did through unions, um, through the uh, civil rights movement. Um, it, it's uh, who, who was the president that the, the democratic president who said he was going to repurpose the civil rights movement 
for the Democratic Party through the um, through the uh, Lyndon Johnson wasn't yeah yeah li- yeah Lyndon Johnson Lyndon B Johnson um, like I said he'd have have uh, yeah, yeah <laughs> get two hundred years uh, of of loyalty to the Democratic Party um, using um, basically with the uh by give with government handouts which destroyed the family which destroyed the black family so um that that guy was the guy's an enemy um so all of that uh leads us to having a different uh we had we had our myth our our mythos failed us the the stories that we told turned out to not the, the eschatology that was promised by the stories that we told um, turned out to fail us all. And so we retreated to a whole new mythos and movies, I think provided that at the time. Um, so then t- what were timing the, wise. So the, then what were the stories that failed us? What were the ones that failed us? Because when you say that, I think so the knights and princesses and dragons and um, uh, well, wizards, so we, we, we stopped telling those stories in the twenties. So those, those stories had, had gone away. The stories that we replaced them with were the rugged individualism, the Oregon trail, the, um, the founding of America, the, the, um, you know, the, the, the heroism of 1776, the revolutionary war. Uh, so we, we, a nationalism, nationalism really was the thing that held communism at bay in America, um, barely from 20, 1920 to 1950. So you have, um, and you still have a little bit, I mean, JFK's, uh, he, his, he called his, uh, group of advisors Camelot, right? So, um, you still do have some of that, that hangs around resonating. Um, but it becomes a story of a nationalist story where the president is King Arthur, and all of his advisors are the Knights of the Round Table. Um, it, so, he, uh, and you know, you had you there. There was an, uh, enough uh, adultery in there to go around to to <laughs> so maybe that's why it resonated with some of them. Because um, you, you've you've got a Lancelot situation for sure. But uh, I think the difficulty in all of it is we actually no longer believed any of those stories were true. And that's the big problem. Not that everybody had actually believed that King Arthur existed or that the round table existed. You know, a lot of people knew or thought that it didn't, that they didn't really exist, but they thought that the stories themselves were true stories, fictional stories, but true stories, stories that really showed the way the world worked, what kind of world we lived in. And, um, the, and that's why this book for, for ritual to Rom- romance, that's why I picked this one up because it, this, because uh, Weston argues that uh, um, he, uh, here's, so this, this is, uh, this is almost the last page. This is the very end of this summary, summing it up. Um, the grail story is uh 
is not just simply the product of imagination, literary or popular. At its root lies the record, more or less distorted, of an ancient ritual, having for its ultimate object the initiation into the secret of the sources of life, physical and spiritual. This ritual, in its lower, exoteric form, as affecting the processes of nature and physical life, survives today and can be traced all over the world in folk ceremonies, which, however widely separated in the countries in which they are found, show a surprising identity of detail and intention. In its esoteric mystery form, it was freely utilized for the imparting of high spiritual teaching concerning the relation of man to the divine source of his being and the possibility of a sensible union between man and God. The recognition of the cosmic activities of the Logos appears to have been a characteristic feature of this teaching, and when Christianity came upon the scene, it did not hesitate to utilize the already existing medium of instruction, but boldly identified the deity of vegetation regarding as life principle with the God of the Christian faith. Hmm. Right. So it's like, yes. So, and this is all backing into the secret, the secret sources of King Arthur's stories was that people didn't know how life worked back in the pre-scientific age. And so they had rituals to make sure that the grain came up next year and that the fruit came to the trees again. And so they would do, they would have sacrificial rituals and dances and different, tell different stories to make sure that spring came again in the middle of winter, because they were worried that if they didn't do something, spring wouldn't come. They didn't understand that this is all just natural processes. So, um, but all of this became uh, he ended up becoming a religion, quote unquote. It evolved into a religion um, at where there was what's called esoteric or hidden knowledge um, that is religious knowledge that's hidden behind um, the natural processes. So really, it started out they were worried there wouldn't be food next year, and they and they did a dance, and then the food came up, and they realized, well, we better keep doing the dance. So the same sort of way that. Uh, you know, somebody wears the same socks every time the Knicks win. Um, and so they keep, they have to have their lucky socks on. That uh, And then that developed into a religion with esoteric knowledge about um, the, that you could actually have a relationship with the spirit of the vegetables, the spirit of vegetation. Um, and that that developed into a philosophy uh, of of divine and human relations. And when Christianity came along, um, it just pulled all of these things together into a ritualistic philosophical system that happened to, to use them all perfectly. And that's why Christianity grew and was quote unquote universal, right. And could go and could cross boundaries. So, you know, before Christianity, you had, each religion in its own space and have its own history. But Christianity is this universalizing religion that everybody could hold to. Um, but really it's just because we still secretly are worried that the vegetables won't come up if we don't do the dance. <laughs> right. That is the argument. That's the argument of this book. This book was so popular in its day that it destroyed king arthur studies after this book people stopped and it just after this book there um 
modernist poetry poetry there was no um you 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 got uh you started to get free verse poetry but there was a little bit of free verse poetry here and there because you have like um like walt whitman he's got he sort of has some free verse american free verse poetry you begin getting some free verse poetry but it it doesn't really resonate with people people don't really love it um after this book there is no, almost nothing but free verse poetry that still goes into print outside of gk chesterton gk chesterton resists and he makes fun of free verse poetry all the time but free verse poetry is what you do when all of the history of poetry has been proved to be a lie which is what everybody thought this book had done it had proved that really the reason that we used rhythm in poetry is because we were still afraid that the sun wouldn't come up if we didn't if we didn't do our rituals that it was all evidence of a secret trust a secret um oh uh, that we were you know we didn't want to walk through a ladder or step on a crack because it would break our mother's back right that 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 all of religion and all of the history of poetry was really just um oh man what's that called when you're just when you just believe something that superstition. Is superstition yeah that that all of poetry and religion uh was just secret superstition um and it just I mean, you what you got was a whole bunch of terrible free verse poetry um out of it that i mean there was some good free verse poetry and there were free verse poets that um that end up getting converted and show us that there's a good use of free verse poetry like T.S. Eliot. But um, a, a lot of the free verse poetry was really just, you have guys like E.E. E. Cummings um, who wouldn't even capitalize things because he believed that it was superstition, um, that a grammar was superstition, <laughs> was fundamentally superstition, and that he didn't believe in real communication. So, I mean, <laughs> ca capitalization at the beginning of a sentence reminded him too much of Jesus. Right, because he, because the logos held everything together. The word held everything together, and so he didn't even want grammar to survive, um, because it reminded him of too much of Jesus. <laughs> Cap punctuation, a period, reminded him too much of hell, so he wanted to get rid of them. It's, and he's right, right? A period he, should. <laughs> he, yeah, he's absolutely right about that, but. Um, the but that that was because he was at that transition so he remembered the old world that spencer is is living in every single thing every single thing points you back to jesus ever that um right and this is why spencer's so important because he's before any of this happens before any of it starts to come along um and so you there really is a um the a uh, a view of the world in which just underneath the surface there is more there is life and color and and um that is constantly trying to break through and point us to Christ because once Jesus was raised from the dead, death starts working backwards, and the resurrection at the the resurrection at the end of time is constantly threatening to break in, and and show us reality, right? But there's still this kind of dusty layer of death that's slowly being um, degraded by the 
advancement in the preaching of the gospel and the the uh the but that dusty layer of death as it degrades um shows us something that is more real that's been hidden underneath all of the time right i mean this is what this is where halloween comes from Mm. right we dress up on halloween um now i mean halloween has been degraded from what it used to be but the the idea of dressing up um was a way uh, you put on a costume to show what was really there all along Mm. you, you, you put on a costume because uh you you put on a costume over what was death's costume that had been put on you by sin. Death had put a costume on you, and then you being put a costume over that costume to show what was underneath the death, right? To show the coming resurrection because it it was Halloween wasn't the only time that they dressed up, right? We we only dress up once a year for Halloween, but they had all sorts of. Um, they had all sorts of of pageants and holidays and uh on the calendar that involved dressing up um and halloween's the only one that survived um because it it, it was the easiest to co-opt uh to a to the new world because you can put on you know you can put on monster costumes um to reveal a monster underneath and and the new world is like yeah we can we can handle that. That's something that we can still co-opt. So that's a lot, Jason. I uh, know. I just I I ranted. Uh, no, it's good because so then <laughs> here's what. But okay, so um, so I guess is one. So is it because of what you're saying as far as like, um, sorry, you, you froze up for a second. I lost you. Oh, okay. Yeah. I'm, I'm checking my internet for whatever reason. My internet's act, acting a little funny. Um, wh- when I opened up, you, one of the things you told me said Spencer's Edmund Spencer's book, a fairy. The, um, this is interesting because I got to talk to Toby about this. He wrote an introduction. I think like a translation of the fairy queen too. So I'm gonna have to talk to him. Well, how come we haven't had this talk about this book yet? Right. But, but this book seems really hard to read. It's the poetry is pretty simple, but when I opened up C.S. Lewis talking about this book, he's like, I've been reading this book for 40 years and I'm just now starting to understand it basically. Right. So, cause, and he talks about, um, it's a Nate that it, we are not natives in Spencer's world anymore. We we speak but we both speak English, but we're aliens to Spencer's world. And to become an, and to become a native, a convert of Spencer's world or a native to Spencer's world um is basically to to return to humanity. Mm. That's how that's how he talks about it, right? So and and he he says it feels like a repaganization. <laughs> like that's how fundamental it like um like we we need to be deconverted from modernism and reconverted or converted back or deconverted to an older view of the universe and the cosmos and everything um and you know uh one of the things man there's there's just too much so go for it (laughs) one of the one of the ways that he tries to help us is by writing science fiction, 
right? C.S. Lewis wrote um, the Space Trilogy, which is a probably not a good name for it because the whole thing is... Oh, I got the hiccups all of a sudden. The whole thing is um, about how the the universe is not filled with just simple space. But um, the first one is called Out of the Silent Planet. Yeah. And you go and they travel to Mars. But the groups that he, the, the aliens, the Martians that he meets, turn out to actually just be versions of humanity from the ancient world. <laughs> because he's trying to get our imagination. Oh, they're the Martians. Click- the, yeah, because he says that's what it would really be like to come in to, to meet ancient people. Is It'd be the way we imagine meeting Martians in science fiction. He said it would be the same sort of thing because their culture is so different than ours. Um, mm. And he is slowly enculturated amongst the Hanau of the um, uh, of the of Mars by becoming Krasa, which are just based on the Anglo-Saxon people where the King Arthur comes from, right? Where all the King Arthur stories originate was with the Anglo-Saxon people, the Welsh in particular. Uh, and so he just says, what if I, what if, if I was dropped, if, if some modern guy was dropped in amongst them, amongst the Anglo-Saxons, it would feel like being dropped in amongst Martians. Ooh, what if I wrote a story about traveling to Mars and being dropped in amongst the Anglo-Saxon people? Right? It's brilliant, and it's really helpful because it shows him this character slowly becoming a part of their society and coming to understand what they value. And, um, and that is, I think, really what we're trying to do with Spencer Milton is he's right on the transition point. So he's, he deals in both, but it's the same with Dante to really come to understand Dante is to come to understand an alien, an alien culture to be, and to, to become a part of it imaginatively was C.S. Lewis's life goal. Okay, uh, so huh? I, I, mean, I don't even know. I don't want to ask the wrong question. Are you are you still going? Because I have a bunch of questions. Go ahead. Oh, let's ask questions. No, no, let's do it. Okay, so Jordan Peterson one point said, in one of his, his many clips I've seen, is that in order. He's like, you can't deny the Bible. It's the Bible's influence on Western culture and society because everything that you touch in literature is coming and choosing and picking from Western, from the Bible. So mm-hmm. every form of Western literature is saturated through in scripture, right? Like, so you can't touch, um, you know, the classics without actually having some sort of interaction with it. It all flows out of scripture. And so how does one become, I mean, praise God for the spirit, first of all, but how does one become alien to, you see where I'm going with this? Yeah, yeah. How, how did and, we become alien to our own? Yeah, well, alien, so that, because it seems like what 
going to really want to read more Western literature, more American Western literature, uh, actually Western literature, period, and become acquainted with the classics and become acquainted with the old world, because I feel like in one sense, not to would be a violation of the fifth commandment, honor your father and mother. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, well, we've had fathers and mothers hand us down a tradition that they've understood for a long time. And we haven't embraced any of their writings, any of their teachings about. And so, but, and, but the way that as Christianity kind of is taught now, there is this, um, a, a removing of all the Western literature for the most part and saying, here goes your theological treaties and exegetical stuff. Focus your attention here on these. In your attention and time and your focus on, but all the things that are in between here that that scripture has influenced, that's a waste of time, right? Because there's that, that right here. Doesn't, it doesn't help you grow um theologically spiritually uh, it doesn't help you grow in, towards the, your your ultimate end it doesn't help you telios right like that telos right. that and so but now i'm realizing that the tradition of where i'm at now didn't just come out of nowhere and not to have that connection to the scriptures through it feels like i'm missing something Right. Does that make sense? Yeah. What well, what you're missing is the discipleship of your imagination. Right. So go ahead. That is and and that's what we have we have left the we've we've because of our Gnosticism, we've left the discipleship of the imagination out of our understanding of the maturing our humanity. Right, we want to become mature Christians, um, and so we say well, we got to get, we need discipleship, right? And so we go get the books on discipleship, and we read theological books, and we read books on uh, prayer, which are you know, which all, all of those things are good. We should read some of the older books on prayer that involve the imagination more purposefully into our prayers. But we, what we leave out is the discipleship of the imagination, not understanding that the, that um, that's like saying, Hey, I've been really careful to trim the tree. Um, I've been really careful to, you know, um, get out there and, and, but the fruit keeps coming up bad and you, and then you look down and realize, well, it's because my tree is sitting on rocks. It's I never buried it in the soil. Right. The, I, I didn't clear the rocks. I didn't make good soil for everything to grow in for my discipleship to uh, of the other areas to grow in. So and there are some theological writers that do a good job of discipling our imaginations. I actually think Calvin, he he's one of the best in terms of involving um, in involving that total understanding of the world and really. But but we have our our imaginations are so thin that often we miss a lot of the parts Calvin. where Calvin, yeah, yeah, we miss things in Calvin because he is he has a thoroughly discipled imagination and he works. In, I mean the the institutes have all sorts of stuff about the discipleship of the imagination. He's he's got a a real like the, the, he's got a ton of writing about 
the corporate mysticism of the uh, of the uh, of the church that literally just goes right past us because we don't understand our 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 imagination has been so discipled into this modernist um materialistic understanding of the world that all of his corporate mysticism um just like bangs off our forehead uh and, and even the word mysticism makes us uncomfortable but that's not a that that's a christian word it's a christian thing you know individualistic mysticism has often gone wrong in the church not and it hasn't always there's been some mystics that have really loved the lord throughout history and that that have given us some beautiful great writings um you know brother lawrence and you know different different uh folks like that but then uh and but calvin is has a very deeply mystical understanding of creation but it's all covenantally bound and corporately experienced um, not, I mean, it's not all corporately experienced, but the, it's corporately, uh, if it's if it's experienced outside of the corporate body, then it's brought to the corporate body, and that's where it is judged, right? Um, because the promises uh, of the the presence of the spirit in the corporate body uh, cause Calvin to expect mystical experiences. See, we had our we're so modernist, we're so materialistic that we even think of mystical experiences in a different way than he did. Calvin believed when the pastor stepped into the pulpit and preached that the very word of God was audibly heard, that we were hearing God speak to us, and that we could expect him to speak directly into the experience of our lives and give us direction for the what we needed in our lives right you go to church expecting god to speak to you as an individual because you are gathered with his people um and then the which is which is why he insisted on exegetical preaching right because because mm. he wanted the word of he wanted the word of god um the word of god preached to match the word of God written because the word of God written was our, was, was infallible, right? So the fallible word of God declared in the pulpit every Sunday in a sacramental service, the, that was the fallible word of God declared and the infallible word of God had to be, so it had to be chained over and over and over to the infallible word of God because God was not silent. God was continually speaking and we knew where he was going to talk it was going to be in the pulpit and it was the responsibility of to bring the word of god accurately um uh, uh, it was the pastor's responsibility to bring the word of god accurately because he was the mouthpiece of the bride of christ or he was the mouthpiece of the body of christ so um that that's that's mysticism that's a because it, it's not an academic exercise an academic lecture was considered a different sort of thing a different sort of thing altogether than a sermon a sermon was the word of god it was the word of god declared into the world an academic lecture wasn't that they they were um because god promised to speak to his people now we we literally we don't have a cat we don't have those 
we don't make those distinctions anymore. We don't have that category anymore. We it's that has we the mysticism um, when we talk when we say mystical, um, we know we we talk about we think man we With, um, oh. probably you know I think the charismatic side kicks in for me and yeah. It's an individual an individual experience that somebody goes off and has by themselves. Say oh, that you. Yeah, yeah. Um, the, when we say we had a mystical experience, it's like an individual experience where they had over off by themselves mm-hmm. some some sort of mystical feelings based maybe experience um, that that gave them that kind of direct. Um, it, it's a direct experience with God, nature to nature. Maybe I don't. I mean, I'm not even sure what we mean. I don't. I don't think we define well, even when we say, "Oh man, I haven't." Because you have people that are like, "Oh, I went up into the woods, and man, it was a mystical experience." You know, and really, it was it was a human emotional experience. But we're we don't have those very often, so they feel mystical. <laughs> Dang. Um, yeah, go ahead. No, so so then, I um, so then I guess read. So then, when Spencer is going to help connect us back to reality, right? So so think of it this way: Calvin, when he says we enter the presence of God at the call to worship, right? His his um, Calvin's liturgical theology is he that's really I pl- probably the place where he's best right his theology of worship and his liturgical theology um in in my opinion I think that's where he's really 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 good um scripturally drawing out um exegetically what what is invisible to most of us he says we're drawn up into the presence of God and so when when the call to worship happens, um, you are sudden, instantly, suddenly, by the power of the Spirit, by the mystery and power of the Spirit, you're actually in the throne room of God, surrounded by angels and by all of those saints that have gone before. Right. So your dead relatives that died in the Lord, you're you know they're there with you on on a Sunday morning, uh, and you're surrounded by all the angels and and so. Um, when the choir master begins the song, angels actually add their voices to our worship on a Sunday morning, right? So, um, and so I, you know, I like to uh, when I'm leading worship, you know, I like to think about, well, I wonder which kind of angels are with us this morning. If there's any of those six-winged bulls, you know, singing bass along with us, you know, do we have? Um, you know, the, any, the maybe the eagle the eagle angels that have the weird hands on the inside of their uh, on the inside of their uh uh wings and stuff like do we have any of those angels here with us right are you, Joy, are, you, you know, are you saying this happens even when we're singing hill song songs it I'm does just, yeah and i'm sure they're yeah. like oh <laughs> <laughs> they're like don't you know they're like don't you know my some of my favorite hymns right <laughs> pick a song guys right that's a um you know and it's a, it's not the sim 
yeah, yeah, I I do think that that happens. And I think um you it's it's the it's one of the reasons that I think it's important to sing to keep older songs in the rotation is because you got angels there that have been you know they've been in worship for hundreds of thousands of years with us and so we want to sing some songs they know too uh, we're not <laughs> so uh that's so crazy that's so, but, so crazy uh, okay I, I mean it, if you sing the doxology at all it's in there right like um so yeah the but and if you read old liturgies you it's the the angels are mentioned regularly throughout the liturgy you know um we who are joined with the angels who who are joined by the angels worship you you know we sing together um what the angels taught us to say but now we lead them in the sanctus mm-hmm. the holy 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 right like we the the older liturgies have th- this understanding and calvin had this understanding we just breeze past it um because we we don't we don't believe that the world that we we don't we don't have the same understanding of the world or of the power of the spirit um to do these things so that by faith we know on a sunday morning that we're joined by the angels in the throne room of god that the that the great cloud of witnesses that has gone before um join us on a sunday morning so and whether that means they're all spread out um, or if it's some sort of by the power of the spirit, we're all drawn together into the throne room and there's one giant, um, you know, it, all of the, all of the hymns being sung by God's people all end up harmonizing by the power of the spirit. Or so we, we don't know which, how it works. We can't do the math, but what we know is that we're joined, we're brought up into the throne room of God or, the throne room of God is brought down to earth, uh, but that we're, or the uh, other possibility is that because it's just dimensionally separated, that there's just some sort of removal of the veil between the two. And we are, we turned out to be right next to one another all along. Um, But we are in the throne room of God. We're surrounded by angels and we're joined by the great cloud of witnesses Uh, that all of that is going on and we can't see it. But but it it's true. Well, what you have with Spencer is all of the pageantry uh, of the Middle Ages, the ca- and the and of the calendar of the Middle Ages was designed to reveal the reality that was underneath the veil, right? So, um, the the costumes the masks there's a lot of masks that they would wear the what's called iconography right the symbolic representation of different truths an icon is a is a um a an image that reveals a truth behind it right so you've got a lot of iconography um and then you have a lot of symbolic use of uh of what we would think of as either allegory or typology um the because they believe that the world was this allegorical place in which we were characters and that there was that that underneath each person that you met right or inside or that uh the the they they were veiled by uh the the truth of who each person was was veiled by the the flesh that was still um 
that was still beholden to death, but that there was a, a true version of that person that was waiting to be revealed at the last day. Um, and that at times it would break out. And so we, and you dress, so people would put on costumes and put on nice clothes and, you know, put on masks and different things to reveal what was true underneath the veil of their flesh that was still waiting to be undone by death so that it could receive the truth of the resurrection. Um, I mean, this is, it's, we, we literally just don't have a category for it anymore. It's hard to describe and explain to people. So, um, the, uh, the man who was Thursday is GK Chesterton's novel about this. And a lot of people are like, man, I was having such a great time. And then we hit the end of the novel and I don't understand what happened. And it's because he is trying to break through the understanding, the modernist understanding of everything being, um, uh, everything being coercive power. And so needing to have, thinking that what we need was a giant conspiracy in order to overthrow and gain power for ourselves. Um, but that actually what we needed is for the reality of resurrection life to just break in and reveal what was already there all along. It's, yeah. it's a different way of seeing creation and the universe and the cosmos and everything. You know, when people think of reformation, uh, is this part of it? Even though they don't this think. Is, I, I think this is all of it for us, right? For, for moderns, all of it is imaginative the, is the is our imagination finally being discipled right our imagination has been discipled away by f- lies away from the truth right and so even when we discover you know we discover like the five points of calvinism and we think right. oh well this is great we take it and we plant it in the soil of this other Modern. imaginative yeah um we 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 put it into a mechanistic universe and um and then we're mean to the to the eternal being that sits in front of us about calvinism right when when calvinism what it should do is cause us to look at the person in front of us um and with an eternal gratitude return the love that we've discovered in the five points of calvinism that god short showed us to God through this icon that's sitting in front of us, right? Because <laughs> it turns each person, it should turn each person into an icon where we can pour love at them because God has poured so much love on us that was undeserving. So whether or not they deserve it or not, the person in front of us is an icon of God. And so we can pour, you. they're made in the image of God. So we can pour love onto them towards God. Our love, we can return love to God through the person in front of us because though they are veiled by flesh that is still beholden to death, they will one day be resurrected away from that uh, without that veil of flesh beholden to death. And their true reality of uh, the image of God will be revealed. And we can see that by faith in advance and, and love them. <laughs> what was the line that you told me about revival? Um, reformation <coughs> oh just that without reformation r- right now revival would be a curse <laughs> right. we, yeah. we 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 just get we we'd get zombie we'd get zombie church um 
because this it's we've got a pretty soulless christianity right now um and so we don't need more of this we actually need a deep reformation within the church and i think it's a generational project but i think it has to do with disciple you taking responsibility to disciple the next generation well that's what the church doesn't do right now it doesn't take you know it sends it 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 depends upon um the the institutions of the world to disciple its children and then it's surprised when they end up worldly um and that and this is not simply a get them out of public schools sort of thing because i've met christians in different parts of the country that have used the public schools and have discipled their own children well um where they either they didn't have the options or they hadn't heard about it or you know what, whatever it was that um it's not a this is not a works-based deal it's looking at our kids by faith and seeing who they are and then raising them according to that um you know it's it, it'd be you know um i've seen people raise their kids in the public schools but they treat it like li- living in a muslim country like hey everything is out to get you and to tell you you're something that you're not right. So that they are, um, I, I think there's a better way to do it than that because we've got options and freedom still here, but it's a matter of faith, not works. Uh, it's a matter of embracing our kids by faith and embracing the cosmos by faith and he- receiving from God, the definition of who our kids are rather than, um, thinking it's, well, I've just got to, do this by works. So you sound crazy. Um, I know. I know. This is why I keep all this stuff to myself, man. Well, I <laughs> You've convinced I, me that I need to say it all out loud yeah, on, no, on record. I think so because, you know, we talk about this and this is not our first time talking about stuff like this, but the more we get into this kind of stuff, there's, I think there's an interesting group that listens. It's like, I've been trying to tell people this for years. And they feel like the old, remember um, Independence Day, the old guy? He's like, I told you there were aliens. They were coming down and getting us. I tried to tell you and you didn't listen. <laughs> you know? And even though there's aliens there, he still sounds crazy. <laughs> right. Even though he's right, like he still sounds a little off. And you're like, all right, bro, calm down, you know? Yeah. Um, it's, but, it's like the the guy in the cage in uh, conspiracy theory. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um. So. Okay. So I'm, I'm, this is all kind of connected. So the introduction. So we're going to start going through Spencer, but first going through C.S. Lewis to help us get handles on trying to be able to read Spencer, right? Right. Okay. So. <sighs> Let me, let me, let me just, okay, put the, okay, hold that together. This is going to come back. I, I want to get to what we were talking about yesterday before I went to church um, while I was at church. Cause I'm sitting in church and you send me this text that was like, it was crazy, but I want to, I want to get to transformer. I want to get to after the spider verse or across the spider verse, because I think this is all connected. Um, those movies are resonating right now a lot with people, especially across the Spider Verse. 
Yeah. Well, I've been surprised at how well Transformers was it seven? Transformers seven. Seven. Is is it's doing really well, much better than some of the other ones, but but it's because it's a much better movie. Um and because it is actually opposing one of the lies that has been being pushed onto people that people have felt like, Hey, I'm, I feel like I'm getting a lie pushed onto me, but I don't have any way to fight back and transformers rise of the beasts. I think is what it's called. Yeah, comes yeah. along and is like, you're right. It's a lie. <laughs> and, and they say, Oh, it's so refreshing to have somebody just say out loud what I've been feeling inside. Um, uh, so wait, how does Transformers Seven do that for you? Because this is interesting. You said what? What does a lot of people think they're getting pushed on them? Um, uh, critical theory. I think critical race theory in particular. People and people are like, I don't have. I don't. It it doesn't feel that doesn't feel right, right? Um, but what, to oppose it, you know, it, they, it, you're told if you oppose it, you're a racist. And so they're like, well, I'm not a racist, but they're, but this is how, this is how critical theory works. Um, it's, oh, it's a Martin Bailey. Is that what it's called? The yeah. Martin Bailey fallacy? Yeah. Where they come and they say racism is a systematic injustice from, by, uh, from the powerful class against the non powerful class, from the majority against the minority. And so, um, it, it's he, the, uh, that's it's not something that just one person has racist feelings against a somebody of the of a different minority or of a different ethnicity that uh, or a different race that's not what racism really is really racism is this thing and you um and so you know black people can't be racist and you know that uh and all white people are inherently racist because it's a systematic thing right you can be anti-racist and you're still a racist because of the system that's set up and then um so they give you one that that corporate definition of racism that individuals may or may not purposefully engage in and then somebody says well i'm not sure if that's the way it works and they say racist you're a racist and they go back to the original definition of racism which is what which is a person not liking somebody because of their ethnicity um but then you can't pin them down on it because then they retreat back to the uh, other definition that they've given you. Right. So they've right. got two de- There's two definitions of racism that, um, that you switch back and forth on depending on what con- you want. Yeah. The, right. On the conversation. And you're able to, to imply all of the immoral, immoral evil of one. Yeah. Of racism on to people but and then retreat and say no i'm not accusing you of that but you're able to imply it right it's that right. mott bailey um you were the one that actually ex- told me about the mott bailey i've read a bunch about it and i was like that's exactly exactly what's going on well that so um what with that how so what what transformers comes along and does and it's it starts out with two different groups of people where two of canal as uh, as um, in old solar from from the space trilogy two different groups of human like beings uh, pe- persons person beings uh, 
that are because one's oh, robots, right? And who have this inability to because each of them is focused on defending their own kind, they're losing the big war. Right. And literally the last speech is him say is uh, I'm spoiling it. Yeah, it's spoiling spoil it? now we're spoiling okay. it. It's over. I'm spoiling it. Spoilers, right? Is Optimus Prime repenting of his critical theory. Re- repenting of his critical race theory that uh so that they can join together and and fight and one of the robots gives his life for one of the humans so that he and they literally combine into a robot human right it's a it, it he 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 becomes mixed <laughs> he basically wanted to watch the movie again to become the hero right to to become the hero you actually have to intermarry the two groups to be to to become the hero that can fight the big the big evil which is the planet planet killing death monster right so to overcome to overcome the death you actually have to repent of your critical race theory and intermarry right it's really brilliant right and um it's it, and everybody's like finally somebody's saying like where uh, time out. No, no, time out. No, 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 no. You don't get away from that. No, I let me just give a reinterpretation of the whole film. <laughs> okay, all right. I turned on the movie. I'm in a the theater. Got popcorn, and uh, because it's because it's a Michael Bay movie, and so it's going to be awesome. We know that. I, that's why I go and see it because it's Michael. Right. Michael B's he gonna give it to me. And so, the first thing I was like. And and I just I'm like oh here they go, checking the boxes. They got they got the uh, Hispanic dude right up here, Latino dude right up there. Okay, yeah. and they got the black girl, right? Okay, <laughs> and you see a white person for miles. Like it was just like they just clicked all the little boxes. All right, we're gonna make sure that we get our awards because we have the minorities in there, right? And who knows how other how many other minorities? Oh, they had an Asian because of the the, the Falcon or whatever her name was. They, they they just checked all the boxes. The the Falcon right. that died, right? That was um. What's oh yeah, name? yeah. Okay, I forgot right. about that. So they hired all the minorities they possibly could, so that they don't get the the woke mob coming after them. I don't think for miles and miles they were thinking, let's make a film that destroys critical race theory. There was nothing in there. That it, still, it still does it. <laughs> it's still because because think think if they would have said at the end, you know what the solution is? We all need to break off and defend our own little group. Robots go over there. You defend the robots. The the his the Hispanics can go over here, or Latinos can go over here and defend them, and we'll let the um and we'll let the one black girl. She she's off off to herself because she's <laughs> right. That they would have lost, right? That that tell it's, critical race theory tells a terrible story, right? And that's why we know it's not going to last. It's a tool for this moment. It's a tool that is used to grow envy and grow rivalry, and it'll be tossed away when the tool is done. The same way the Black Panthers were tossed away when they were done being used as a tool. Um, where you, you you know that that's the way. Um, that that is always the way that 
the I mean the left thinks um, the left is a it's not just the left right now so I don't want to oversimplify it but um, that's the way that evolutionary materialism thinks the evolutionary mindset thinks uh, is here's a tool I know they're people but I'll use them up until I'm done using them then I toss them off um, but the but they showed that you can all combine together without losing your own embrace of your own place and your own people. Because what was the last thing that he said before he went into battle? Do you remember? He was talking to his brother. This is Brooklyn. For Brooklyn. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. Yeah. That's after the marriage between the alien robots and the human people into a single hero. And he still says for Brooklyn and everybody cheers. I mean, in my theater theater and I was with Abby's, so we high fives because it was an awesome moment. And then they made, then they use LL Cool J to make me cry. Right. 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 Uh, after they raised, you know, cause it, that after they raised uh, death and resurrection, they had that death and after the death and resurrection. Right. Um, don't call it a comeback. I'm not yeah. going to, cause it's a resurrection, but yeah. it was, a that was an amazing moment. But they showed that you can that you don't actually lose your individual, and this is because of the way God made the world. You don't lose your individual identity, your individual love of your own place and your own people by um, by acknowledging that somebody else loves their people and their place right in the same sort of way. When you you can recognize your own love of your people and your place and your history and your culture, you can recognize that in somebody else without ever thinking it's a rivalry. But okay, so, so, so take Optimus that. Prime at the beginning, he says it's a it's a rivalry. It's you or us, man. And I'm choosing us. And that's how people feel about Juneteenth. Right? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. It's the rivalry there. Well, that was y'all. That was that was something for y'all. We 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 can't. It's not a part of. It's not us, right? So y'all y'all sell y'all y'all celebrate. You don't have to be on a national holiday. Nobody telling you. You know what I mean? So there's that, that same kind of reality can be there too. You know, it's interesting. Do you? There's a challenge here because they're communicating. Do you think people are getting what they're communicating? You know, you were talking I, about. Go ahead. I think their I think their imagination is being discipled by the by the stories, but that's not that doesn't have to be on the front, you know, the front part of the mind. That that's an imagination. When the imagination is discipled, it's it's you're discipling your affections, what you love, right? It it helps you hate rivalry, which we should. I mean, there's a. It's not so, all rivalry because we the rivalry with the devil is is actually something that we should love. So is that have. is that part of what was beautiful about COVID? So I watched over the years um, theological rivalries become pretty nasty, <clears throat> and in COVID there's some clean lines that started to happen really quick. And all of a sudden uh, the planet eating monster existed. Right. <laughs> okay. And all these other sex just kind of like lump all the dispensationalists. They weren't dispensationalists anymore. 
all the antinomians, they were all theonomists now. And everybody just went like, okay, even MacArthur, who was like, right. we lose down here, was like, we ain't losing this one down here. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Ultimate, we we lose. We win yeah. this uh, th yeah. this lawsuit, but right. we're we, we gonna win today. We gonna win, and we gonna have some parking. I guarantee you that. Yeah. I guarantee you, we gonna win, and we going to church on Sunday. I guarantee you that. <laughs> I bet you Jesus gonna be praised today. We won all those, you know. And it right. was amazing because that th that was all of a sudden it it just didn't matter. There was kind of like this weird kind of um, converging into unity that I saw in the body. That it didn't even matter if we weren't the minor majority. It, it was the the merger of fellowship that I finally seen that I hadn't seen. <laughs> I hadn't seen, right? Right. Um, and so you you kind of see that, and so that reality became like it didn't matter anymore. Nobody was arguing eschatological positions anymore. They were in the fight. They were in the battle. Right. And it's kind of happened. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, uh, yeah, you, you see this when. Um, I mean, God's God sends opposition when we refuse to be unified, it, mm -hmm. because it. And here's, I think, you know, you're right about that. Can I can I just give some examples too? I, yeah, I think yeah. I think when we refuse to be unified, I think that's one way to say. It. And I think it would add on to it. And what that looks like is faith in His promises, trusting Him, and not complaining. Right. When you know when yeah. you don't have unity because you're complaining. And when and if you look at numbers, that's when they got the serpents. It wasn't the devil that brought the serpents. Right. Right. It was God. Right. He brought right. the serpents to unify them, to bring them to repentance. And then he had Moses say, Hey, and and put the take that serpent, have them look upon it. And they put that in the temple, right? And so in the tabernacle. And so there was um I, yeah. Anyway, I just want to say that that's what God will bring those things on. And we sometimes think that it's the devil. And it's like, well, actually, it's God because you were being horrible. <laughs> right. right. Well, and I mean, you've got this prayer for unity that um, that Jesus prays. So we know it's coming. Right. Because God, the father's not going to not answer Jesus's prayer. Right. He's so the unity. <laughs> The unity is always going to return, and when we live in a, we live in a fracturous, uh, schismatic time right now, uh, where we, you know, we read, um, you know, First Corinthians twelve about the body of Christ, and we're like, mm, it, <laughs> I, I'd rather not, Lord. Right. I would rather not be unified with those people over there or those people over there. And, um, but it tells us, I mean, we're told here is, um, we're, we're given the body of Christ, uh, in first Corinthians 12, 18 through 20. But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose, if all were a single member, where would the body be as it is? There are many parts yet one body, Right. God arranged arranges the body and um we have decided that we would we we've been transing the church cutting pieces off now for a couple of generations and now the world is like hey we'll sh we'll go all the way right <laughs> we'll, we'll secularize your schismaticism and actually start cutting off pieces of real people's bodies um 
but we are the ones that have been um, trying to cut off pieces in order to make the body of Christ into who we want it to be rather than who receiving it as a gift from God. So uh, the it's, uh, I mean, I think even this old trans movement is just the church leading the way, unfortunately. So what does that look like to trans the body? Like to, to actually be cutting off the body. When you say like God has assembled it, what I give give me more well, of a, go ahead. I mean, I think I think a good example is it's hit or miss on whether or not I'm gonna be able to take communion if I just walk into a church. Right. If and if I just you know, if if I visited, say, every church on the uh, main street, um, you know, one one of the main streets, you know, division maybe up and down. Spokane and just visited every church within a block. Um, I could probably only take communion at about a third of them. Right. That's a, we, we are a divided and schismatic people. Um, I, I'm a baptized believer in Jesus, but that's not going to be accepted at Lutheran at some of the, some of the Lutheran churches, some of the Baptist churches, some of you the know, Roman Catholic church, the Eastern Orthodox church, um, the, uh, the, uh, I guess probably most of the charismatic churches are not close communion. I would imagine. I don't have as much experience. No, in charismatic churches, but, no. um, but we have, um, an inherent, there's an inherent, there's a, I, so, so I'm not talking about just, dude on the internet that is divisive because that that happens and that's there and um i'm talking about the institutional church is cut up into pieces is not one loaf is not unified and um the we even use the word ecumenical as a bad word right you know, that, he's totally ecumenical right but that's not I mean, God wants us to be unified. And that means that we, that the different portions of the church need to clean house. Right. Um, but I, I, I uh, was, you know, have seen people say, Oh, well, he's super friendly with this, that group over there. And so I don't trust him. They're like, well, that's a, um, that group over there probably doesn't trust him because he's friendly with you. You know, <laughs> that's like, it's, the there's a a fundamental uh rivalry that that um most churches grow based on so you go on church websites and it's really common for them to put up you know their distinctives before they put up their theological the things that unify if they even do right they don't like if they say oh yeah we are apostles nicene creed we believe in those things that um, they'll put up their distinctives. You know, we're pre-tribulational rapture and uh, not you know, cessationist and you know, whatever, whatever the thing is that they say. This is what makes us distinct. Um, and re- reformed churches do too. I remember talking to one pastor who they were saying we're having a hard time getting our church to grow because we can't figure out where the reformed people are hanging out. <laughs> well, no wonder. You're, you're trying to grow your church based on rivalry, right? Um, 
hey, we're not those people. We're not that church. We're not that church over there. Right? Rather than, hey, we're the church that goes into the presence of Christ on a weekly basis and then lives um, out the mission of God uh, by the Spirit, right? That, But you wouldn't trust a church that that's what they said, right? I mean, most Christians wouldn't trust a church if they said, well, this is what we do. We gather in the Christ's presence once a week by the power of the Spirit. We confess our faith. We hear from him. We're transformed by him. And then we go out in the world and we try to live it out. And that's. Okay. Let me, let me, uh, there's, there's a bunch of questions I want to ask you, especially around guys who have, um, cause I think there's a lot of churches. I think there's a lot of churches. You're right about that, that you probably wouldn't be able to take communion at. And there's a way to ask the question that's probably easiest and that's right up front, but I'm not going to ask that question. I'm going to ask a different one. <laughs> would you give, would you allow a woman pastor to come and take communion with you at your church? Um, it, it depends. So we have, uh, we have open communion, but it's closed to people in high handed sin. And that's how we fence the table. Um, so it, the, uh, that that is you, true. How, how do you, how would you know what, would you consider Sorry. that situation high handed sin? It, it depends. So I, I have seen um, women who really love Jesus, who are in a situation where the men all push her forward out to the front lines and she's yeah. just trying to do what's right. Yeah. Um, shame and, those guys, right? Yeah. Right, and where the people in sin are the cowards that right. pushed her out front. Right. <laughs> um, okay. Fair. Yeah. So, but then I've, I've also seen situations where you've got. I believe that she has that to. <laughs> Go ahead. Sorry. I still feel the responsibility that she has not to be pushed. Oh yeah. No, absolutely. But I, but there's, it's still, it's still a situ it's still a situation by situation thing because I've, I've, you know, there's also usurping, you know, women with a usurping spirit that they're after the power. And I I've seen women. I, I have, I've been in a, I was in a room where a woman was describing what, why is this a church where all the power is, in the hands of men. You think you don't know much about pastoral ministry, do you? It's, all, it's, it's the most powerless, thankless job there is. There is so little power in a, in a pastor's hands. He's a, I've, a pastor spends more time pleading with people than anything. Um, don't, don't do this with your life. Right. Cause you don't have power to stop them. Right? You just, right. you're like, your power is that the, the spirit adds his, his, um, his strength to your words, uh, that, that you, that the word of God changes hearts and changes what people love. And right? that's what that the, the power you have is all in your weakness, Paul says. Right. So it's not a power. Um, it's, it, it is, it's not a power structure sort of game. Um, but it is a, a frontline sacrificial game, right? You're putting your hands on a pastor when you're ordaining him the same way that you do to a sacrifice before you kill him, right? Because that's what's happening. This guy's dying on behalf of the congregation. You don't do that to women. You don't, that's not how, what women are for. Women give life. You don't, you don't sacrifice them um, on the front lines. So, uh, and, and that's a, that's a metaphysical cosmological question in my mind. Not, not even, I mean, there's other reasons as well, but that's, yeah, but you're so still, 
You're still 50-50 on this then, depending on the situation. Depending on the situation, right? And um, w- when you do open communion, you warn people, but you don't always know every situation, right? And but you don't have to because the um, – you uh, and you know our our pastor does a really good job of of this every sunday where he says look if you're living in high-handed sin and you come forward the reason i'm warning you is because it's dangerous for you to take communion in that situation um because god protects his people one of the ways he protects his people is through communion right it's a powerful yeah. it's a it, you know, so um you somebody who is uh you, un, unholiness is not a threat to God, but God is a threat to unholiness. Mm. So um, I, I actually think open communion is a protection, um, is a protection of the church in a way that closed communion. I mean, it, it's closed in the sense that you have to be baptized and you you have to be professing Christ, right? And not living in high handed sin. So some people would even call that closed communion, but um, the, the, the historic, um, so the the historic definition of open communion is that uh, Christians within earshot are, are invited to the table. So if you hear the invitation um, to the table and you're a Christian and that, that, and with that definition of that, that's the definition of Christian that we use for our, open communion then you're invited to the table so um closed communion is that you have to uh be either a member of the church or baptized in this congregation in some situations uh, a member of the denomination uh, like a roman catholic you have to be a member of their denomination to be able to come to the table um the i mean i don't go to roman catholic <laughs> church ever so that's well, not a, have a some Lutherans have really have to be a member of that church. And I think yep. they don't even let you take communion outside of that environment. So if you can't take communion in another church um, as well. Some Lutherans. Yeah. So, and some Baptists are like that as well. And that's, and, and that is, um, I think that is a, fu- we've, we have a fundamentally schismatic um, understanding of the church in America. It's a post enlightenment Gnostic schismaticism that we that we have just accepted all across the board. I think everybody has it, uh, and we and so it's a matter of whether we're resisting it or not, um, right? Whether we're trying to lean against it, and and um, God is gracious. It's it's he's he's not going to um, throw his people away because we've fallen into this multi generational error, but. Um, we still should be confessing it and resisting it the way you do with any sin. So then what is, okay. So there's a lot, I mean, okay, we got to end. All right. Let's talk about that. Well, I want to hit on that a little more because I think we've talked about that, that the table is the answer even to the racial issues that we see. And because, mm-hmm. because we can't get it right there in the church on communion, we, we are having the same sort of fallout inside of the culture where there's no unity there. Um, and we were talking about Calvin and the table. Um, what was the book? It was Calvin's view of the table. Uh, yeah. Uh, Wallace Calvin's Wallace. Calvin on the word and sacrament. I think. Yes, that's right. Calvin on the word and sacrament. That was, that was, you should go back and listen to that show. But um, I, so we're going to spend the next couple of knocks unplugs on Edmund Spencer's book, fairy queen. 
Um, are we gonna? So, and then we're, we just went. We barely went through the introduction because there's so much in this introduction. Like just his, like what Lewis is talking about here. Um, ugh, when he talks about. I don't. I don't want to read. We'll be going in this for another hour. <laughs> she says, "Art, as it is known to us, can sometimes peep into a world other than our own. But this was art jutting out into life, and life turning into art. And oh, dude. so I'm hoping if." I'm going to start reading the fairy queen to my kids. Um, and as I'm canceled movie night until across the spider verse comes out, I think this coming week. And so fairy queen is our book that we're going through right now. And I'm hoping that, um, because the whole point, so if I remember, was it the 12 virtues that Spencer wanted to, work through to try and promote yeah. i think he died at six or seven it was the one. yeah he didn't finish so it was yeah. finished by someone else um but he yeah he got to six or seven of them but the whole point was to bring in the the 12 virtues and to show the morality that we should all have uh as humans and so particularly man if i remember correctly yeah uh, but he also with the queen as well there's virtues that were there uh, the way that he puts her up in a high hierarchical structure, you have these virtues, morality, and these are things that is that I find, you know, honestly, Jason, if we just had Father's Day yesterday, honestly, I find that this is, it sounds like the re, I need to read this for the rebuilding of fatherhood. Mm -hmm. because, yeah, I, oh, go yeah ahead. it's that, it's that re, it's the, so their understanding of humanity is that virtue is life yeah right? so you're choosing between life and death when you choose yeah. virtue you're choosing life right um and and so instead of choosing death you choose virtue um it's a, how to live well in the world god made um but we don't believe god made the world fundamentally and so we don't have virtue because we don't think we're trying to live in the world God made. We're we're living some in something else. So I do think that folks like Spencer, that's why they're so important. Is it rebuilds our humanity. And even just the way that you've got a virtue and he applies it one way in a masculine way for men and, and the same yeah. virtue in a feminine way, right? The, being able to really love and enjoy the differences between men and women um, rather because, because they're not in, they're not rivals, right? Men and women aren't rivals. They're different. Um, and a, a virtue looks one way for a man and another way for a woman. Um, and uh, the, uh, and not, not everyone like telling the truth looks the same for everyone. Um, but you know, uh, using your strength for the weak looks different because feminine strength is different than masculine strength. The, um, and uh, a uh, and that's a good thing, right? That's that's a, a beautiful thing. That's you know learning that sort of thing, and, and not just learning it, but having our imagination discipled into loving it. 
I think is what Spencer um, can do, even though it's hard work and, and maybe we need a new Edmund Spencer. Um, maybe that's what somebody out there listening is going to become, or one of their children will become the next Edmund Spencer, but. We didn't get into the Spider-Verse. We'll have to hit that one up next time. Cross the Spider-Verse because I, I, yeah. All right. So next time, what are we doing? We are, are we going to go through the chapter one of Lewis? Cause you even said reading Lewis on this is hard because Lewis assumes that you have, well, that was the thing that I was reading the introduction. There was so much stuff. I didn't know what he was talking about. I have like, uh, I, I felt I, dumber I, after having read it. I read it with this right here because I had to, I had to look up all those middle English words. <laughs> oh my goodness. I have that set. Cause you, yeah, you that, it's got, it, it's going to have the words that, you know, when you come across a word um, and you don't know what it means. You mean like 90% of them? Like, like wood woeses. I had to look up wood woeses. What was wood um, woes? It's the, uh, the wild man of the, the, the green man, the wild man. That that led the procession. I, what yeah, saying? yeah. Okay. <laughs> I was like, I don't know what a wood woes is. I have to look it up. But it was in there. You know, when I was talking about um, movies being a form of the theological poetry from yeah. general revelation, I was getting that from I think it's page thirteen where he says, "For they regarded poetry and especially ancient poetry as a veiled form of theology." Right. Yeah. And 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 it was just really interesting how he said that. I can't remember who it was that he said this, but um, was it Vita di Dante? Um, Vita di Dante. Yeah, Vita di Dante. But uh, Boccaccio. Who was that? Uh, uh, Boccaccio was he was an Italian poet. Um, so he wrote. You have Boccaccio over there too. Yeah, yeah. so he wrote the De- <laughs> the Decameron. Um, this is this is actually on my summer reading list. So I'm I'm reading this one this summer. So he because uh, uh, Chaucer he went to Italy and he came back with Dante and Boccaccio, and then wrote the Canterbury Tales. So um, Boccaccio uh, is a storyteller. And he, de- but he depends upon and and draws a lot of his inspiration from Dante, who was a one generation beforehand. So the greats, um, the great Italian Renaissance poets are Dante, Petrarch, and Boccaccio, and they are in that order. Dante was first, Petrarch lived next, and then Boccaccio. And so, um, yeah. So in the life of Dante, is so Boccaccio wrote a biography of Dante and in his biography that's where he says the ancient poets so far as it is possible to human capacity followed in the footsteps of the Holy Spirit theology and poetry are in agreement as to their form of working not merely it is poetry theology but theology is poetry well that's you know it's funny the the more that I'm being able to read a lot of this poetry what is it the fox um what was the Martin's Fox, I can't remember the name of the book. Oh, uh, yeah, but the Gerhard Bernard. Goethe's Reynard Re, the Fox. Reynard the Fox. I started reading that and I couldn't put it down. It was amazing. 
It was the the temp, the 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 clock or the timing of it was interesting. The rhythm was interesting. The story was interesting. And by the time that I think that the fox was done, you know, because somebody said something about him, then his nephew or cousin would come in and defend him against the lion. I was like, oh, snap, the lion was holding back. Like, he ain't tell the whole <laughs> truth. Little sneaky dog. It's, it was it was interesting. And it gave me it was a type of reading that I don't read anywhere else that was tantalizing. And it made me think in different ways. And it was the kind of thing as I, cause I started reading to my wife I was like, babe, you got to hear this. But it was the kind of thing. It was like bringing a horse to water. And eventually the horse knows that the trough is over there and he's going to start walking willfully himself to drink. And so by the time I started reading, I felt like I could know where he was going. And it tickled me that he had me, he, he was such in my head with his forms of poetry that I started to get there before he got there. And then he started in a place I didn't know. And then I'm like, where is he going? And then I find out where he was going. And it, it would just, it was amazing how he was bringing it to the well to drink every time and in a creative way. And I wasn't thinking like that before. And it made me think different. And so then when I go back and read numbers, or I'm reading my Bible. It opened up for me uh, a way of thinking in full context of story. So just an example is I'm going back and reading numbers with my family. I started thinking of the parallels between the garden and numbers because everything in the story of the scriptures is to get back to the garden, right? Right. Restoration of the world through Christ to make garden cities better than the garden. And so you see God giving his people a garden experience in the desert, right? And then you see them doing the same thing that Adam and Eve do, which is not appreciated well enough. He's showing you the outside, the other side of, or the inside of Adam and Eve and in the process of showing you his people. And then he does something super crazy. I'm sorry, man. I know I'm going on a tantrum here, but I just got to say this. No, this is good. He does something super crazy when you, by the time you get to Balak and Balaam. So you're at 23, 24, chapter 24. And it's been nuts, man. It's been back and forth, right? It's just been like, kill Moses and Aaron. God, you brought us out here to die. Ah, Give us something to drink. We don't like this food. We want meat. You're going to die with the meat. Ah, And then it's like, and they're not, and there's something else I learned. They're not forgetting. They're not forgetting. They're not forgetful. They just are unappreciative and unthankful. They're thankless, right? Right. And so you get to Balak and Balaam. And he's going back and forth through the whole book. And by the time Balak, he's asking for God to curse Israel. He goes to Balaam because he knows that when Balaam speaks, God listens and does what Balaam asks, right? So Balak goes to Balaam and says, curse Israel for me. There's a lot of people here. These people are like going to take over. Go curse them. And he goes three times and three different altars and three different places to show Balak takes Balaam in three different areas to look at Israel. So maybe God would curse him from this direction. Maybe God would curse him from that direction. And then, and finally God's like, I find no fault with Jacob. And when I read that line to my family, we all busted out laughing. <laughs> like, 
it was hilarious. Like, God, you got Balak who is pointing out all the bad stuff. And then God responds to Balaam to tell Balak that I don't find any fault with Jacob. And we all looked at each other and died laughing because we just got done reading a whole bunch of stuff. You know, this is right after the ser serpents too, right? Like, like right. God's serpents to curse them, right? <laughs> God has cursed them in some times. And then they come back and repent. They've gotten kidnapped oh, the, from the Canaanites, right? The <laughs> right. Canaanites, they were supposed to take over the Canaanites. They get kidnapped. They promise with God. Like, oh, we're going to serve you. We're going to do right. And then God gives them authority to come and fight off the Canaanites. And you're like, you just, like, we're faithless. You could have had the whole thing. Anyway, it, but it blew our mind that the way that God forgives his people to the point that when someone else comes to curse them, he says, I don't find no fault with them. Right. Yeah. And it's just and so if that I was telling my kids, if that was looking forward to Christ and that was the blood of goats and rams, how much more with the blood of Christ? Right. <laughs> like That is like right. and Balaam's eyes. It's, it's so funny. Uh, now our line is God will um, use the mouth of an ass to open the eyes of a man. Right. Yeah. And but it was amazing that Balaam's eyes were open in the process, too. But Balaam just didn't see Israel. When you read, he's seen the coming conqueror, Christ. Right. And the curse was that because you didn't see it, Balak, all y'all, all you leaders, everybody who you sent to gather for me to come, y'all done. <laughs> like, you got to get crushed. Like It's like, oh, 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 one more thing. I think it, it drove us hilarious. We'd start dying at the point where Balak is like, well, you don't have to bless them um, and you don't have to curse them. Just do nothing. Don't curse right. them or bless them. Just let, let it be neutral, just, Lord. Just withhold the blessing. Withhold if the if blessing. I can't get a curse, just withhold the blessing. It was, it's, I mean, people, but anyway, going back and strengthening my ability to read with poetically, I'm able to see a larger context of the narrative that isn't just numbers by itself. You would think numbers and living is those are the books that people can't make it through. The story that's there that is connected directly to the garden um, and through Egypt. And the, I mean, it's just, there's so much richness of reading that I'm, I'm able to glean now. And it, it's not just because I have some sort of exegetical hermeneutic. I right. read poetically, right? It, it's, and, and it's, we tend to approach hermeneutics like it's a science rather than becoming people that can read, right? Hermeneutics is about literacy and becoming someone. So we don't think in terms of being transformed ourselves. We, we think of it in terms of a science. Can we take this? We, we want to develop a system where we can take a passage and put it through uh -huh. the system in order to get to the truth. Um, and, but rather than in terms of becoming the kind of people that can read, right? So being transformed by the scriptures into readers um, is really the, should be the goal. Um, so the, cause the scriptures, um, and this is this, this is Calvin's mysticism again, right? Where he calls the scripture self-attesting, right? That the scriptures are self-attesting it means they will create it's it, or the scriptures create its own create their own audience 
yeah. because of the spiritual power within them. It's not separated from God. It's the Holy Spirit's power still. Um, but the, the scriptures themselves are, are miraculously self-attesting. It comes um, by hearing. Right, exactly. Word of God, right? Um, and there, there are other books that are, that are self-attesting. They're just not miraculously self-attesting. Hmm. They, they create their own reader. Um, the, and, uh, you know, that, so Goethe's like that uncle Remus, if you've read the uncle Remus novels, that, uh, I books, they're I like that. Get that. I should get that what one. Was, uncle Remus. Oh yeah. Yeah. Those are great. Um, <laughs> I got that one over the, there. That, I the heritage. Right. The, um, be, because they're so ch- they're, the the writing the charm of the writing um is char- like i think of it in like a technical sense that's a spellbinding the writing is spellbinding or yeah. spell breaking break spell breaking maybe um, so you but where and and it, um so where you get to the end and you want to be a better person Yes, because of the because of the stories, yes. you know, you want to be uh, wiser, you want to be more cunning, you know, you want to be more honest, you know, all of the the things like that that are good. Oh, you learn um, how to, you learn how to be cunning in a way that's for the good and not bad, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you don't want to you you you. There's a way to be cunning in an evil way, but there's a righteous kind of cunning um, that uh, that you see in Solomon that comes with the wisdom to the wisdom to judge and the wisdom to lead um, people, you know, it, you, we, we always think of authority at, and power as coercive, but the, a cunning ruler um, we used to be a ble- considered a blessing because he, you knew that if you followed him, that you would end up in the right place because he was, he was cunning. And so you loved following a cunning ruler that literally is a category that's gone because we think only in terms of power, power differentials and power structures and coercive. And because, because of that, we've lost the, the trust of women to follow men because that idea has been gone. Like that's what a woman should look for is a man that that's cunning because she, and she can trust him because she knows that with him, she's going to end up in the right place. Right. right? Like that, that he's he's got a plan. He's going to follow it through. He's going to he's going to you know uh, a, uh, that that he's not just because uh, the opposite of cunning is is living passive, right? You don't have a plan, right? Um, so that that passive, uh, it, you know, the that's you you don't want to be a passive man. You want to be a man that has a that has a plan. Um, that's a and a cunning man has a good plan, right? Um, and, and a virtuous, right? He's going to be virtuous with his plan. You, a uh, good man. So, cause there's an, there's an unvirtuous way to have a plan. That's like, ah, uh, you know, um, like I just rewatched that old movie office space where they create a plan on how to rob the company that they're working for. Right. That's an unrighteous <laughs> cunning. Um, but you do, so you don't want that. Um, you want a righteous cunning, but, you develop that through the, the stories, through stories, by learning the way the world works so that you can say, oh, I know what story I'm in. I know which story I'm in. I know where this story leads. I've been here. You know, I, I've imaginatively been here before. Even if you haven't personally been there, you've imaginatively been there before. 
through the stories that you read. So I mean, Aesop, Aesop, um, Remus, Goethe, all the, you know, those, those are the guys that do that. I'm going to go grab uh, Uncle Remus. You know, in, uh, that Uncle Remus in our in, in the black context ain't a good thing. Really? Well, there's, there's, I, I'm I, only aware of you have to tell me about that another time because I'm really only aware of the book. I don't I didn't know that there was watch. Uh, what if you get a chance to watch Boondocks, you'll see it. Okay. <laughs> it's actually I just it's in my list because it just it's up in uh, it's on HBO now. Boondocks yeah, is. Kids. <laughs> oh, yeah, I know it. I've seen I've seen it I've seen it like episodes here and there on television but I've never watched it all the way through. They so. drop some bombs that I don't know if you can drop now that okay. really was telling on a black community. The one with R Kelly. Oh, <laughs> oh my goodness. It's straight like if that was ever a punch in the face. So do you know so R Kelly they hold no whole thing little girls. Did you ever see that one? Where he, I didn't. Where he, I haven't seen that. Yeah, I'll just tell you so quickly. That one was hilarious because basically, our, they knew R. Kelly was guilty. They had all the evidence, and so long as R. Kelly was singing, did nobody care. So R. Kelly would just start singing, and everybody was like, "Hey, who cares what he did?" You know, basically. And so, <laughs> one of the kids got up there and said, "Stop all this doggone singing and doggone dancing, and bring some judgment against this cat." You know, like it was just hilarious because it was like all he had to do was just sing. And we was <laughs> nobody wanted nothing. Nobody wanted to keep, and it just—I mean, just if there was ever a punch in the mouth, like they—they they did it multiple times, and there's okay. some things they did that were super foul. But other things they did, yeah. they were like really good. And it was like, oh, if you guys weren't so foul, you guys would have. But it was—I it, don't yeah, know. Boondocks is like the black. It's like a black South Park. I mean, it's yeah. That's yeah. that's that's right. It was better that, animation. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. All right, man. We got to get that. So what? Are, what? Are, so next week we'll go and do what? We'll do chapter uh, one of C.S. Lewis Spencer's Images, or should we yeah, start? Well, there's, I think. So there's, uh, there's, chapter one and two are the, f- uh, about the false cupid. So I think that's what we should do. All right. Cool. That's what we'll do. All right. All right, man. Thank you, bro. Yeah. Thank <laughs> you.